0: As some of you know, most of you know, the, the path by which God led me to himself was not the traditional path. I wasn't born into a Christian household. I wasn't even born Christian. I'm a Jewish guy. I was a Jewish lawyer for 17 years. It's a very weird path. It's not, I don't recommend taking this path. But I have to tell you that before I started down this path to Jesus, I literally, literally, I've been watching a lot of Parks and Rec reruns, and and Chris says literally a lot, so I find myself saying it again, but I literally knew nothing about Jesus. I knew the name Jesus, but that's all I knew about Jesus, and I knew that the people, there were people in the world that were called Christians, and I knew that there were people in the world called Catholics, but I didn't know that they had any connection at all to that name Jesus. I know you think, that is, how do you not know that? I, I ask myself that question all the time. My, my, my brother, my youngest brother, Dan, by the way, uh, was born in Baptist Hospital in Miami. Now, now there's this whole Baptist health system, but there was just one hospital back then. And do you know I didn't realize that Baptist had any connotation, religious connotation until fairly recently, certainly after I became a Christian? I didn't understand Holy Cross, Mercy Hospital, none of those places. I never made the connection. That's how little I knew. Now, I did know, as my grandfather taught me and as his sister, my great aunt, taught me, that those people, those Catholics and those Christians, were not the same as us. And that they told me that I should be very careful when dealing with them. Now, I would like to point out here, you guys know my parents, they're back there. They never said that, okay? It was, it was my... my Grandfather, my great-aunt. My parents never said anything like that. They, they never talked like that. To them, they taught us to evaluate people as people, to evaluate people by their, by their character, not by their faith or their upbringing or their ethnicity or anything. And, and I'm certain that my upbringing is one of the things that left the door open for me so I could hear about God at the right time. So, Mom and Dad, thank you for that. But for me, the whole concept that there were people around me who were different from me just by virtue of how they worship or how they were born, about whom I need to be cautious, it made absolutely no sense to me. I could not see that difference in anyone. I knew there were, there were Jewish kids that I grew up with who were, who were difficult people, and, I, and, and so, okay, fine, I didn't associate with them. And, and then I knew there were people that my, my grandfather and my great-aunt referred to as Goyim. Um, the Goyim was used to describe them. To them, anybody who wasn't Jewish was Goyim. And I knew that i had lots of friends. That's a Hebrew word, by the way, Goyim. All it means is nations. So the way it's used is there's the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and then all the other nations, all the Goyim. That's what that means. Goy is, is nation, the the Suffix I-M is what makes it plural. It, It just translates nations, and it just means you're not part of the nation of Israel. Now, in Jewish circles, the word is used as a mild derogatory word, mild, somewhat of a slight or a slur, but nothing worse than that. Oh, anyway. So, I couldn't see any differences between us and the Goyim. We wore the same clothes. We ate the same food. We listened to the same music, we liked the same sports, we thought about the same things, and as far as I could tell, there was no differentiating between us. But one day I noticed somebody who was different. I told you the story a few weeks ago, I won't go into great detail here, but suffice it to say, I noticed a difference in somebody, and that difference motivated me to ask questions, to check things out, and to eventually surrender my life to Jesus that worked exactly as the Apostle Peter said it would work in one of my all-time favorite Bible verses. And I know pastors say my favorite Bible verses a lot. And it's funny, if you asked me what my favorite Bible verses are, I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head. But when I get there and I read them, I go, oh, yeah, that one. That's one of them. So here's one of them. It's from First Peter 3, verse 15. Peter says to us as believers, as followers of Jesus, always be prepared to give an answer To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That is how I became a Christian. When I asked my friend what made him so different from everybody else, he immediately pointed me to Jesus. And it's because of what he did and his faithfulness back then that I am able to stand here today. So it's interesting. I tell people all the time that I met Jesus before I met his church. So it was after I met Jesus that I met his church, and I met a lot of people. And I started to see something. I started to see that many, not all, but many of the leaders I met conducted their lives just like the friends I had growing up. They behaved as if there was absolutely nothing that set them apart from the people around them who didn't know God. The anger, the rage, the pettiness, The jealousness, by the way, I looked it up, it's a word. The bitterness, the fear, the gossip, the snarkiness that they exhibited in their day-to-day lives was thoroughly indistinguishable from everybody else. And I thought, that doesn't seem right. That never, never sat well with me. Because that kind of living is simply not the kind of life to which Jesus has called us. And I felt compelled when I saw that behavior to do something about it and to jump in. Now, one of the things that we're trying to do here at Hammock Street is to equip every single one of us to go out into the world in our own unique and diverse ways and the ways that God has created us and live the kind of life to which the followers of Jesus have been called. That is our calling, is to follow Jesus with our life and then to show it in our life. And this brings us to part five of our series, You're Not Far. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through the story of Jesus as observed through the eyes of Peter, who was an eyewitness, the Apostle Peter, and was dictated to a guy named John Mark, we call him Mark. It was recorded in what we know of as the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's where that comes from. The Gospel of Mark is really Peter's story about being connected to Jesus. A little feedback there. If perhaps, and and perhaps if if you're not comfortable reading the Bible yet, and you're still not convinced that the Bible is the word of God, it will help you to think of the Gospel of Mark as not just a Bible story. It is a Bible story. But but if you don't want to think of it that way at first, that's fine. Think of it as a true eyewitness account of Peter's observations and experiences with the famous Galilean rabbi named Yeshua, named Jesus, who turned the world on its head 2,000 years ago and who stands today still as the most influential figure in world history. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll dig in. Father, open our hearts and minds as we study your word. Change us from the inside out, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter starts off in Mark's gospel telling us where he's going. He begins with the end in mind. If you ever read Stephen Covey's uh, Five Habits, he says, begin with the end in mind. When you're telling a story, tell people where you're going to go. So that's what what Peter does here. He told us that the main point of of Jesus' life, he gave us the main point of Jesus' life. Right up front, Peter said that wherever Jesus went and every time Jesus spoke, there was one theme to which he kept on returning. And here's the theme. We've talked about it now for the first few weeks. Mark 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means that you are never far. If the kingdom of God is near to us, that means we're not far from it. Repent and believe the good news. Now, remember, as we've pointed out, The idea of repenting as it is explained here is a positive thing. We think of repentance generally as a negative thing. Oh, no, I've done something wrong. I need to repent. That's the way we think of repentance usually. Or I need to turn my life over to Jesus, so I need to repent of all my sins and focus my life on Jesus. That's a different way. This, repent just means to turn. And here it means to turn to, to turn and face this extraordinary new worldview, this new set of values, this new way to live, and turn to it and embrace it. Repent and believe this good news, this gospel. That's what good news is. Now, last week, Jesus had just finished accusing the religious leaders who traveled up from the Jewish headquarters down in Jerusalem, the home office, He accused them of being hypocrites. By the way, if you missed any of these messages, you can always catch them on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and type in uh, You're Not Far, and you'll you'll pick it up right there. He told these these Jewish leaders that they were guilty of elevating their own man-made traditions above God's actual commands. All right, so after Jesus called them hypocrites, he basically said, now get out of here, and sent them back on down to Jerusalem. So I'm going to show you my map again. So it's from there. Remember, they are, they are still kind of up north in the Galilee region. So they go even a little bit further north to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way to this region of Caesarea Philippi, something significant happens. We turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, he asked his disciples, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, the the prophet. And still others, another one of the prophets. And then Jesus follows up by asking this of his disciples. He says to them, "But, but what about you guys? Who do you guys? You've been with me for three years now. Who do you guys say that I am? You guys, what's your view? I know what you're hearing on the street, but what's your view? Well, the most bold of the, of the apostles was Peter. You read a lot about Peter. Peter's always stepping up and stepping in it and putting his foot in his mouth. He's a really interesting fellow. So he pipes up, and here's what he answers You, you are the Messiah. I'm imagining his hand shot up, you know, real quick. Yes, Peter, you, you know. Boss, we believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Christ is merely the, the Hebrew version or the greek version of the hebrew word messiah in hebrew the word messiah is moshiach in in greek it is christos so we say messiah and christ you are the christ you are the son of the living god now jesus acknowledges this and he accepts peter's answer now matthew's gospel we'll just jump to matthew real quick matthew's gospel gives us a little bit more detail about this encounter matthew quotes jesus as saying back to peter blessed are you simon son of jonah remember his name was simon peter Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, you didn't come up with this on your own. It's not because your buddies told you this. It's because God told you this. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, Petros in Greek is a nickname for a person. And it means, essentially it means Rocky. Okay? So he gave him the nickname Rocky. All right? So, think of Peter, think of Rocky. And on this rock, you see the play on words there, I will build my church, I'll build my community, I'll build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So, Jesus says, Fellas, you are correct. And on that, as my foundation, on the fact that I am the Messiah, I will establish something that the world has never seen before. I'm going to establish an entirely new movement. My congregation, my ecclesia will be like nothing else. All right, so immediately after saying that, Jesus and the fellows begin the long journey southward from Caesarea Philippi, past Capernaum, past the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to Judea and ultimately to the holy city, Jerusalem. And as they traveled, Jesus reminded them along the way, once again, of what they would expect when they reached Jerusalem. So we go on to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, Son of Man is one of the terms and titles Jesus uses for himself to identify himself as the Messiah. It comes out of the Old Testament, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Now imagine the confusion of Jesus' disciples. They've been with him for three years, they're now thoroughly convinced he's the Messiah, But he just told them that. He just said, you're right to believe that I am he. I am the long-awaited Messiah. So in their mind, they're thinking, yes, that was a good bet. We followed the right guy. This is awesome. There is no way this goes badly from here. There's no way the Messiah will be killed. And he just said, he's going to be killed. And not only that, they were of the mindset, as were many in the ancient world, as are many today, That bad things like that just don't happen to good people like Jesus. Jesus was the best person they knew. And they were convinced that bad things don't happen to good people like that. But Jesus was just so matter-of-fact about the whole thing. He said, guys, this is what's going to happen. Peter tells us how matter-of-fact Jesus was in the next verse. Jesus spoke plainly about this, Peter said. "Like Jesus just said, hey, guys, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again three days later. And they're like, wait, what? You know? Well, his words and tone really bothered Peter. Peter was concerned that if Jesus kept talking that way, he's going to turn the crowds off. Remember, in Mark's gospel, every, every chapter but two, we learn about the crowds <clears throat> that follow Jesus around. And Peter's saying, boss, if you keep talking so negatively about being killed and all this stuff, no one's going to come. You're going to turn the crowds off. You're going to, you're going to scare the crowds away. So in verse 32, we keep reading, Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Can you imagine being that bold that you're rebuking Jesus? Jesus, come here. Where'd you take marketing? Like, seriously, do you even go to class? I mean, this is not how you market. Gotta love Peter. He never left an opinion unexpressed. He was just great. Now, on behalf of all the disciples, Peter's essentially saying, Jesus, you gotta stop it. Cut Cut it out with all this negativity. You're beginning to frighten the kids. Well, Jesus did not appreciate Peter's comment at all. And immediately, verse 33, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Like, you don't want to upset Jesus like that, right? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you got this all wrong. What you want is a kingdom like all the other kingdoms, but I'm not that kind of king, and this is not going to be that kind of kingdom. That is not why I have come. And then to punctuate his point, to make his point abundantly clear, Jesus stopped and called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and here's what he said to all of them. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So, okay, I hope you can feel it now. Jesus is a little bit, little bit irritated about Peter. And then he's a little bit irritated that maybe other people think what Peter thinks. You just feel it in his voice. And he says to them, if you want to be my disciple, you need to say no to yourselves and take up your own cross. And then you can follow me. And I imagine a hush fell over the crowd and you could only hear... Ooh. My friend Ronnie likes to say, Jesus wasn't playing. Jesus wasn't playing. Jesus said, if you want to follow me to Jerusalem, it is going to cost you something. Now, for us, sitting here in air conditioning in Boca Raton, 2,000 years later, a culture removed, a few continents and a few couple of oceans away, we hear Jesus say, take up your cross, and... And follow me. And we take that as a metaphor. But for them, it was different. For them, it was literal. See, they were familiar with crucifixions. They'd seen crucifixions firsthand. They'd heard the screaming. They'd smelled the smells. They'd seen the blood. It was bad. They'd seen the horror. And Jesus is telling them, that's the kind of horror that you're going to face if you follow me. Following me is going to cost you something. And yet wrapped up in this terrifying declaration was an amazing invitation. Here's what Jesus said next. Here's what he says. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life. Uh -uh, That'd be me. I want to save my life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Now, I hope I'm not the first one telling you this. I hope you've learned this before. But everyone here will lose their life no matter how hard we try to save it. But if before that day, we only live for ourselves, we'll only have ourselves to show for ourselves. You got that? Before that day, If we only live for ourselves, we'll only have ourselves to show for ourselves when it's all over. And then came the but. Verse 35, we continue, but whoever loses their life for me, Jesus said, and for the gospel, for the good news about how we can be connected to God, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And right there, Jesus was inviting them, and Jesus was inviting us to live and lose our lives with purpose. So at that moment, Peter and the fellows had a decision to make. And they're like, what do we do now? Do we go back to fishing and live out our lives out there on the lake? And then one day when we're old, die in our beds and fade into obscurity? Or... Do we rise to this challenge? Do we accept Jesus' invitation to live our lives with purpose? What do we do? And if you're not there with me yet, let me point it out to you. We have that exact same decision that we have to make in our own lives. Will we live solely for the purpose of continuing to live? Because quite candidly, that's the normal human temptation. Just try to keep on going as long as we can. Not worrying about anything other than that. Even though we know it's not going to end well. Even though we know we don't make it out of this alive. Even though the odds of each of us dying are one out of one. No one makes it out alive. So will we continue to say yes to our fear and live out of that fear? You know what happens when we say yes to fear? When we say yes to fear, fear will always aim us toward the path of self-preservation. When you're afraid, all you're thinking about is saving yourself. You never do anything bold because it's too scary, it's too risky. I might not make it. When you're afraid, you always try to preserve. That's what fear does. But Jesus knew that if you follow the fear path long enough, You're not going to save your life anyway. You'll neither preserve your life nor have anything significant to show for your life. So the question that Jesus posed to his followers is the very same question that he poses to us today. Will you, instead of going the way that you want to go, toward your temptation, towards the easy life, just to survive, will you instead follow me? Will we, every day of our lives, wake up and ask ourselves, am I in today or am I out? Am I going to follow Jesus today or aren't I? Am I going to look at every situation through the lens of what does love require of me? Right here and right now, or are we going to ignore it all? Now, it would have been much easier for them to stay up in the Galilee region, to get back on the Sea of Galilee, just to start fishing again. But by God's grace, Peter and the others decided to follow Jesus. And for that reason, we actually are talking about him 2,000 years ago. If he had just gone back, if they would just gone back to fishing, we wouldn't know who they were. We wouldn't be having this conversation. But that brings me to this question. In a year from now, in five years from now, in ten years from now, when 2023 is just a story that you tell, do you want to have a story that's worth telling? Do you want to be able to tell a story of of how you every day in every way loved like Jesus? Or will you be content with just shrugging your shoulders and saying, eh, 2023, eh, they all kind of blend together. Nothing much was different, didn't really do anything, nothing remarkable to report, nothing to see here. (sighs) You see, the decisions we make every day between now and the time we go home will determine the stories that we get to tell It'll determine the stories we get to tell our friends and our relatives and our children and our grandchildren. Because whether we realize it or not, with every single decision we make, every day we're writing part of that story. And though the path of least resistance would be for us to just stick with business as usual, just sort of continue on and live out of fear. And, oh, I'm so worried. Oh, we're going to lose our country. Oh, the world's out of order. Oh, everything's so scary. Blah, blah, blah. If we choose that, we'll lose the opportunity to do something meaningful, to do something extraordinary during this season of our lives. Well, Peter and the band decided to follow Jesus. So we're going to jump ahead a few chapters. And here we'll find Jesus and the disciples traveling south, toward Jerusalem. We'll read in Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. I just got done telling you they were going south and now I just said they're going up. What does that mean? Let me show you real quick. Down there on the southern part of the map is Jerusalem. have it circled for you. But Jerusalem sits up on a hill. So people always went up to Jerusalem. That's the way they described it. Because when you get there, you've got to climb the hill if you want to go to Jerusalem. Okay? So we continue... They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Now, the implication in Peter's words here was that, in essence, after all that doom and gloom talk, after all of that scary, this is what's going to happen to me, I'm going to die, all this, after all that, Jesus was still leading the charge. He was still eager to get to Jerusalem. He was leading the way as they walked there. Then on the way, Jesus, again, for the fourth time, warned his disciples of what faced them in the holy city. So we read again in verse 33 this time. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, that's himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And here's what those chief priests and teachers of the law are going to do to Jesus. They will condemn him to death... They will hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then something pretty random happened. Then, right then, right after Jesus had given them this graphic description of what they could expect when they arrived in Jerusalem, right after that, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came Jesus we're going to talk about that James and John the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus so they walked away from the others got Jesus kind of over in the corner got him alone and quietly said to him verse 35 teacher we want you to do something for us we have a favor to ask of you we want you to do for us whatever we ask rabbi we have a special favor yeah, we heard you when you described all that stuff about how you're going to be spit on and flogged and killed. And, and yeah, that's horrible and everything. Ooh, you know, gross. But can we ask you for a favor? To which Jesus, and, and it seems like he calmly responded here. I think I would have not been calm, but I'm working on that. But Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? Now pay attention here because we're coming back to this in a minute. Jesus says, All right, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Jesus, will you let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory? (laughs) Were you guys listening to me? Flogged, spit on, killed. Let one of us sit in your right hand, one of us sit on your left in your glory. Hey, Jesus, would you allow one of us to be a right-hand man, one of us to be your left-hand man? Would you allow us to sit in the places of prominence when you're in your glory? Not right now, of course, not when the mocking, spitting, flogging, killing is going to happen. Not right now. After that, after all of that, when you're in your glory, you know, once you've established your kingdom, when all the danger has passed, all the flogging is over, Will you put us in honored positions in your government? Now, if I were Jesus at that moment, I'd probably have called down fire and sulfur from heaven to turn them into a pile of ashes for having the temerity to ask me a question then like that. But, of course, that is not what Jesus did. That's why I'm not Jesus. Instead, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. You knuckleheads have no idea what you're asking for, do you? Jesus is like, you guys, you have no clue. You've been with me three years. How do you still not have a clue? (laughs) Guess what happened next? Well, when the other ten disciples heard about this little sidebar conversation, they became indignant with James and John. They were ticked off. And they were not ticked off because James and John were disrespecting their teacher. Rather, they were ticked off because James and John were trying to get something without including them. I, I, you know, I have two sons, and, and Beth and I were so careful when our sons were young to make sure that we treated them fairly. Do you do this as parents? Do you do that? We we, we always made sure they got the same number of Christmas presents. We bought one sneakers. The other one had to get the same kind of sneakers. So they would never feel like we favored one over the other. And that's kind of what's going on here with the ten. Oh, that's not fair. They're just so whiny here. So an argument broke out among the disciples about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is watching this whole thing. So what does he do? He calls them together, and he says to them, and I always imagine that right before he says something, he goes, all right, one more time. Slowly, for the slower among you, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, he's saying, you guys know how the Gentiles, the Romans, the unbelievers, the goyim, you know how they are, right? They're brutal, they're ruthless, they're merciless, they only rule for their own benefit. You, you guys know all that, right? You guys know how the world is. You know how awful they are, right? You know how, how those guys only care about themselves and only do things for themselves, right? And I su- suspect the disciples are kind of, uh-huh, yeah. But I also suspect that they still weren't getting it. I imagine they're thinking, yes, we know exactly how they are, and that's precisely why we want to be your top guys when you establish your kingdom. Because we want to be the rulers. We want to be like them. It is our turn. We want to now rule over them the way that they ruled over us. And upon hearing that, I I kind of feel like Jesus took a beat. And after drawing another deep breath, (sighs) He looked at them, and he looked at you, and he looked at me. And if you're any kind of leader at work or at home or at school, he looked at you, and he said four words. And these four words should send a chill up of all of our collective spines. These four words should stop us all dead in our tracks. They're four words that if we will heed these four words, they will make each of us as leaders, no matter what we're leading, They will make us leaders that are worth following. And here's what Jesus said to them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Boys, that is not how my people are going to do things. That is not the kind of king I am. That is not the kind of kingdom I've come to establish. I've come to turn the way the world currently works on its head In the world system, that stuff might fly. But in my kingdom, greatness will be defined another way. Unlike the kingdoms of the world, Jesus said, in my kingdom, verse 43, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And that didn't end it. He kept going. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And I'm kind of picturing the disciples standing there, their mouths hanging open. And then Jesus kind of drops the hammer, and he blunts all of their excuses even before they had a chance to make those excuses. And Jesus said, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They must have been so confused. They so did not expect Jesus to say that. And maybe they were rethinking their decision to follow him. They'd made it down to Judea, and they'd ended up in Jericho. And there they stood before another crowd. And verse 46 as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Just a little tip here: Bartimaeus. Bar means son of, so bar mitzvah means son of a mitzvah or son of a good deed. So Bartimaeus was his name, so son of Tiemus. so Bartimaeus. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, remember he's blind, so he had to hear it, he began to shout, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me." Well, that upset a lot of people in the crowd. And many people in the crowd rebuked Bartimaeus, and they told him, be quiet. I mean, they're thinking, this is a very famous rabbi. We came to hear him, not some blind beggar mouthing off. So be quiet. But Bartimaeus shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, come on. Jesus is right there. Bartimaeus had to take his shot, right? Remember, this was Peter telling the story to Mark. And Peter knew just how intent Jesus was on getting to Jerusalem. We just heard that Jesus was leading the charge. He couldn't wait to get there. And yet, Jesus heard Bartimaeus, and he heard his plea, and he took it as an opportunity to teach, an opportunity to show his disciples exactly what he had been talking about, to show his disciples what his kingdom would look like. So Jesus took that as an opportunity to show them how his kingdom A kingdom in which those with power, prominence, and resources would use them for the benefit of those without them did this. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Okay, so you got that? Jesus is on his way to his date with destiny. He's on his way to do the important work, the vital work on the cross, the work to which his whole life had been leading up to, the work to which he had led the way, all the way down from the Galilee. I mean, Jesus was a man on a mission, and yet he stopped everything for a blind stranger. And if you think about it, it's bracing. It'll wake you up like cold water in the face. Because similar to Jesus in this situation, in our modern world, that describes us in a way. We're busy too, right? And a lot of the time, we're we're too busy for anyone or anything but ourselves and our own interests. Sometimes following Jesus requires stopping. So Jesus stopped, and he said, call him. So they called to the blind man. And they said to the blind man, it's your lucky day. Cheer up on your feet. Jesus is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. And what Jesus said next is remarkable. Because as you'll see in a second, what he said next is just strange. Strange but I'm guessing that Jesus said it not for Bartimaeus' benefit alone, but for the benefit of James and John. Following on the heels of their outrageous request, I want to be on your left, I want to be on your right. They were so dense. Notwithstanding the fact that Jesus had just told them of the horrors that awaited him so that he could save the world, all they wanted to do was have him make them famous and prominent. But Bartimaeus, what did he want? So Jesus asked him, Okay, what do you want me to do for you? Did you want to sit in a prominent place in my kingdom too, blind man? No, Bartimaeus just wanted one thing. So he answered, Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus, I just want to see. Imagine if that's all that James and John wanted. If it were, perhaps they would have better understood what Jesus had been talking about the whole time. And, And guys, listen up. In this statement is a prayer, and it's my prayer for myself, and it's also my prayer for you. It goes like this. Jesus, help me see. Heavenly Father, help me. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Help us to see, the way, to see ourselves the way that you see ourselves and see our families. Help us to see the way you see our community, our ecclesia. Help us to see the way that you see the people around us. Help us to see the lost people. Because if we could see as you see, we'd be much more ready to strive to do as you've called us to do. And if we could see as you see, we'd be less inclined to see things as sacrifices that aren't really sacrifices. It's not really a sacrifice to help somebody when you're on your way. We'd say, God, help us to see that our obedience is never a sacrifice. Our obedience is always an investment in the invisible kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, help us to see things the way that you do. So what was Jesus' reply? He said, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately, Bartimus received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And we'll start there next week. But before we go, I want to put this back up. Not so with you. And now here's a question. What would applying that in your life look like for you? What would it look like in your home or at your work or in your community or at your school? What would it look like if you heeded Jesus' words and became a not-so-with-you leader? Because when you follow Jesus, he's going to lead you in that direction. Jesus will lead everyone who has any kind of influence or who is in any kind of leadership position. Jesus has called each of us to leverage the power we have, whatever power that is, to leverage the resources we have, whatever resources that Jesus has given us for the benefit of those with less. This is where Jesus wants to lead us. This is the law of Christ, to love God and others as God has loved us. Next week, we'll see how Peter will eventually find himself hiding in the back of a crowd, watching his rabbi give his life as a ransom for many. And a few days later, Peter would finally put all this together and understand that Jesus was indeed a different kind of king, who was introducing a different kind of kingdom. Becoming a not-so-with-you leader begins with one question. A question that was similar to the one that Jesus asked Bartimaeus. And the question was, what can I do to help? If you have any kind of influence, if you're in a position of any kind of leadership, I would encourage you to write this question down on a post-it note and stick it somewhere. You'll see it every day. I suggest your bathroom mirror so you can just read it every day. What can I do to help? Because if we're going to lead like Jesus... We all need to be people who ask this question, which is essentially the same question that Jesus asked before he gave his life on the cross as a ransom for many, as a ransom for you, and as a ransom for me. What can I do to help? How can I loan you my strength? How can I put my weight behind your need? Because when you leverage your power and you leverage your resources for the benefit of those with less power, you're not far from the kingdom of God. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when you lead from that place, you will be a leader worth following. Not so with you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, for your word. Thank you for helping us to understand that there are two ways in this world. The world's way and your way. Thank you for helping us through your word, week after week, to understand that your way is the way to abundance, the way to truth, and the way to life. God, we thank you for this. We love you and we praise you. We ask that we be ready this week to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we are and wherever we go. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.